The views and opinions expressed on the nurses' station are those of our hosts and guests. Not necessarily the views of Emory University, Danelle Hudson Woodruff School of Nursing, or Emory Healthcare. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Nurses Station show where real nurses come together to talk real talk. I'm here, uh, Tim Cunningham, joined by doctors Roxana Chicas, Carolyn Clevenger, and Lexi Dunn. And we are excited that you've come back to join us again for our next episode. We are so grateful for your support. With each episode, we have more and more listeners tuning in and following us. You can check us out on nursing.emory.edu or wherever you listen to podcasts. I recommend Spotify if you want a good place to go to. You can check in our LinkedIn group. It's called the Nurses Station Show. That's where you can get our show notes. And during this podcast and webcast and all of our casts, feel free to chime in on the chat box. Let us know what you're thinking. If you have ideas about future episodes, if you've got comments or questions, because the opinions that we share are our own. They come from our own lived experience as professional nurses working in all sorts of different backgrounds. Um, So we want to know what you are learning and we want to respond to some questions that you have and thoughts that you have. We welcome them all. Um, So excited to see you all. I feel like it's been a long time. We run these every two weeks, um, but time is so strange in COVID, isn't it? Um, How y'all been? What's new in in, in your, your neck of the woods? I'm good. Uh, <laughs> I'm good. I'm strong. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I think we're all just trying to survive the insanity and uncertainty and everything that's going on <laughs> in this world as best we can. Yeah, exactly. I, I'm hoping by the next time we, we talk, I will have seen a, per, a patient in person, which would be the first time since we um, went all telemedicine six months ago. Wow. Fingers wow. crossed. Fingers crossed for you. Hopefully we can get that soon. I've been really stressed recently because I just read some statistics that are upsetting me. I don't know how they feel about you all, but we we play this acronym game. It's sort of like a swear jar sort of thing. As you all know, um, and our listeners in nursing, we've got tons of acronyms. So we've tried on this show to spell out the acronyms and say what they are. And when someone says an acronym by saying the word like AACN or FMRI, which apparently I've done on recent episodes without explaining it, we have to put some money in the pot in the middle and we eventually use that money um, to, to go out and celebrate at the end of the season. So the stats that are concerning to me are as of last count, um, looks like Roxana, I, uh, I'm sorry, you have, you have three. Um, three that you mentioned. Lexi, you've got one. So it seems like you're in the lead right now. You're doing a pretty I know, as job. usual, because I'm always the winner. <laughs> all right. And we're going to see how you feel at the end of this episode, because this episode is all about you and your work in midwifery. And I know you Oh, but midwives. I'm ready. Don't you even worry about alphabet. it. I, don't, I never understand midwives in the room. All right. So Lexi, you're doing okay so far with one. Carolyn, pretty solid work at two. Um, so the numbers are, are relatively low. Um, I'm... Can we do a drum roll before you announce yours? Because I'm pretty sure it's... <laughs> drum roll, please. Drum. So I'm up to nine. <laughs> and, so I'm going to do wow. a really good job today. I'm not going to say a single acronym. And if I do, I will put double N because I'm going to be so focused on this. Oh, course. you're up Mark in my space. words. If I say one acronym, it counts as two. For today or just going forward? For today. 
Wow. wow. Such, such high bars. You are such really power. going there today. Okay. I you feel know, you double digits are coming your way. <laughs> the only <laughs> way to win is by focusing. So I'm going to focus, focus, focus. Okay. So today, our topic is midwifery. As you all know, Dr. Lexi Dunn is a nurse midwife. Um, she's okay. an expert in the field. So Lexi, this is going to be uh, your show in many ways today, um, and I'm excited to learn from you. We're going to talk about a few few different aspects. We're going to talk about midwifery, nurse midwifery in general, sort of the pluses and minuses about the work. We are going to take a moment to acknowledge mortality rates of mothers and babies, because that's a real thing. We're going to share some stats, um, and we're going to talk about how is COVID changing the way we look at nurse midwifery and maternal care and, and, and baby care. And in, in, in covering those topics, we also have an interview at the end I'm super excited about. Um, we're going to loop that in. But in covering these topics, I want to begin by recognizing and acknowledging that we're going to talk about some very sensitive things, which we know affect at least one in four women across this country of childbirthing age. So we want to recognize that some of these topics might be hard. As listeners, take care of yourselves as these topics come up. And if you need to tune out for a second, that's totally okay. Um, you know, as I think about the nursing profession, nurses are there at the beginning and the ending. Dr. Ernest Grant mentioned this um, in, in some of his talks when he talks about nurses and the amazing policy that work that we're doing. Nurses there are there at the beginning and ending. We're there to catch babies and we're often there to hold the hands of people as they die. And I think a challenge with, with, with nurse midwifery is sometimes we catch the babies and we're also there at the moment that the babies die. So nurses, beginnings and endings, ups and downs, and the highs are super high and the lows are super low. So I think we're going to kind of move through all of that in today's episode as we jump in. So Lexi, I'd love to turn the mic over to you and nurse midwifery. Yeah. Tell us about it. Um, and if, if I turn a little bit green, please forgive me. Cause like, I love okay. everything, everything about nursing you. I love. All right. I'm just like, I don't know how you all do it. Teach me. Come on, Vice President. You, you can handle this. If you can do your job, you could totally be a nurse midwife. That's why it's, it's I not would. that hard. Oh, man. <laughs> I think it's the hardest thing in the world. Yeah, I love being a nurse midwife. Um, for those who don't know, so I, what it is, is I have a master's degree that has me duly trained in nursing and midwifery. Um, and so nursing and midwifery are two separate professions, but you can also do them together. And so we're advanced practice nurses. We provide care across the spectrum. We do antepartum, intrapartum, postpartum care, well woman and GYN care, primary care, and also infant up to the first 28 days of life. So our scope of practice is actually very broad. A lot of people think midwives just focus on the birth, but we actually can take care of, like I said, women across the lifespan. So I think it's a really neat profession. I've really enjoyed it. So Lexi, let's say we have a, 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 an undergraduate who is studying nursing and they want to move forward to become a nurse midwife. Like how much time does that take? What, what sort of steps do they need to think about? Well, it kind of varies because like I said, you, you don't have to have a nursing degree to become a midwife. Nurse midwifery is just one type. But if you were an undergraduate nurse, you would complete your, your uh, bachelor's level training and then you have to go back into a midwifery program. And they range from uh, 18 months up to three years, depending on if you complete a master's degree versus a, a say a, a doctorate of nursing practice degree. You thought I was going to mess up, didn't you? Nice. You I'm already did, ready. actually. What? OBGYN. Oh. oh, oh wait yeah. a minute. I didn't say OBGYN. You said GYN. Yeah. Well, GYN yeah, you, you oh. totally said it. Yeah. You know what? I can't, I can't be authentic and track the acronym, so I'm just going to have <laughs> oh, to. You're wow. right, Tim. 
I'm gonna just have to take a hit on this episode. All right. You wanna take double right. the hits? No, I mean, I need not, I need someone to keep bold. up with me. Nope, 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 nope. So, anyhow. <laughs> All right. So what is GYN care? Gynecologic care. So like your well woman care, your pap smears, your breast exams, things like that. Whole, whole spectrum. So as we, as we think about nurse midwifery, Carolyn and Roxana, I mean, you're nurses, you, you had those options of, to choose your direction. How come you didn't go in midwifery route? Uh, for me, and, you know, giving birth is supposed to be the happiest moment in someone's life, right? And I quickly saw how that can go wrong. And I just didn't feel like I was capable of being able to comfort a family, I would probably just, you know, fall to pieces with them. And I just, I, I just, that, that's a hard uh, area, I think for me, uh, just to be present when, and, and a baby dies, like it's just really hard. Yeah, everybody has their thing. I mean, you can't, it's just like, I couldn't imagine doing other specialties, but even though it can be sad, uh, labor and delivery is a mostly happy place. I think that was one of the reasons why when I was going through nursing school, I kept my mind open to different things as I went through my different rotations. And for a minute, I thought about doing pediatrics, but for that same reason, Roxana, something about seeing children sick, I just, I couldn't personally handle it from an emotional standpoint. But with the labor and delivery, even though you do have those times where it's, it can be bad, it's a mostly happy place. So I think that's one of the things that really attracted me to it. Yeah, I mean, mama said a lovely history in uh, my uh, bad training as a nurse, midwife, or in labor and delivery. I passed out for the second time in a patient room while someone was getting their epidural. I had a very high sympathy factor. So when patients were struggling or were expressing pain, oh, like I immediately got sick. So I, yeah, so she's getting an epidural and um, having a lot of discomfort with it. I pass out in the chair. I'm very <laughs> helpful. Wow. Oh, man. And yeah, so I that's did, not the place for you. That's a sign. That's a sign. Mm -hmm. And then I did my nurse externship actually in labor and delivery and NICU. And I always oh, knew I was wow. going to do geriatrics. I was doing geriatrics. Nursing was second. Geriatrics was first. But I thought this is an interesting place to be. And I got great experience in the critical care kind of space. So managing mm -hmm. just one or two patients who were in this high intensity environment was actually really good training for doing adult ICU later, but never even crossed my mind as a long-term possibility. And I don't <laughs> think I would have, although I have gotten much less sympathetic over the years. Don't yeah, worry. There you go. <laughs> uh, yeah, sympathy only lasts for so long as nurses. I don't know if we're going to talk about Nurse Ratchet on a future episode, but uh, we might want to bring that up. You know, I had an amazing mentor during my um, uh, labor and delivery. I almost said L&D, but I'm not going to pay double today. During my labor and delivery rotation, and he was a male nurse, and he was the only male nurse midwife in our whole health system. And I said, how do you do it? I mean, you're, you're, you have never given birth. You will never be able to give birth based on the parts that you have. And yet you're such a beloved midwife. How does this work? And he said, well, Tim, for me, it's, it's about trust and it's about connections. And he said, even though I'm, I'm, I'm physically different from the mother's delivering, there's a different level of trust. And I, and I really appreciate how do you build that trust and build that connection. Um, well, speaking of... It's always interesting to me when people ask the male midwives how they do it because we have male doctors, obstetricians, and no one like that. That's not like a second nature question. You know what I mean? It's just interesting. I think midwife has a historically female a connotation, but midwife actually means with woman. 
So that's what the term midwife means. So anyone can be with woman. Anyone can be a midwife. You as a partner can be, you can midwife your partner. So it's about being with her and being present with her. Oh, wow. You know, speaking of history, are you all familiar with Ignaz Simmelweis? I don't know if I'm saying his name right. Ignaz, Ignaz Simmelweis was, I believe, an Austrian physician way, 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 way back in the day who was dis, almost disbarred. Um, they thought this person was a little bit crazy for some decisions that they were trying to make. Um, and it's also possible that he had syphilis in his old, old years and was kind of losing his mind a little bit. But check this out. Ignaz Simmelweis is thought to be the founder of hand hygiene. And you know how he learned about hand hygiene. It wasn't this male doctor. It was the female nurse midwives that he worked with that taught him about the importance of hand hygiene. So way, way, way back in the day, he's working in a, in a, in a labor and delivery unit. And on one side where nurse midwives were, were helping catch babies and treating moms, they had a very high survival rate, really good survival rates. And on the other side, there was a group where medical students were catching babies and they had extremely high death rates for mothers and babies. And so Simmelweis, um, they, they think of him as one of the early epidemiologists, started asking questions. So why, why is this happening? And what he learned was the nurse midwives came in and they washed their hands and they cared for moms and babies. They were with moms and delivered safe births. The medical students, before they went to deliver babies, were in cadaver labs, dissecting cadavers and learning about causes of death. And then they went right across the hallway and helped deliver babies. And those are the moms that were dying of, of, of newborn fever and illness. So Simmelweis said, hey, I think hand hygiene had something to do with it. And the physicians at the time almost kicked him out. Like they tried to disbar him because they thought he was crazy. And they're like, don't change our practice. We know what we're doing. And, and so I believe that hand hygiene comes from nurse midwives. Um, who, you know, we think about mamas have been giving birth since the beginning of time and other women have been with them, caring for them. So, so why do we even have physicians in the profession? I don't know. Well, it's hard. You know, that, that history, I mean, we can spend a whole episode talking about how this profession came to be. And I have my feelings about it because you gotta remember midwifery as a profession has been around since ancient times. But when nurse midwifery came around, it was kind of like a a newer profession that was a merge of nursing and public health. Um, but there is an underpinning there because there were historically black and immigrant midwives that were caring mostly for the women. But once medicine kind of came in um, and there was this, this kind of movement to kind of make those midwives look unprofessional and they tied it in with nursing and public health. So even though I am a nurse midwife and I do believe in nurse midwifery, there is a history there that has resulted in the fact that our profession isn't as diverse as it should be. Um, the, the community midwives and the midwives that have been with the community did not have a kind of a pathway into the professional level of quote nurse midwifery. So it's, it's still kind of messy. So I agree with what you're saying, Tim, in the sense that the infection control and those things, but some of that was done to eliminate this group that had traditionally always done birth. And we're still dealing with the ramifications of that today. Wow. So as nurse midwife, you're also advocates and, and, and major game changers. Yeah, yeah. We're always kind of in the middle of something. So we're always trying to make it better for the women. I think one of the things is we have to address that history of how those decisions effectively eliminated a, a um, part of our profession. 
the community and the people who are with the women, the people who are midwifing the women um, and how medicine, you know, I think there's a place for it. I'm glad that we have modern day obstetrics, but there's also a piece that has gotten eliminated that I think ultimately affects outcomes for particular groups. Yeah. And let's look at yeah. some modern day outcomes. Um, this is a document that I pulled up from the Mater Maternal Health Task Force at the Harvard Chan School Center for Excellence in Maternal and Child Health. And I wanted to read just the first paragraph and open up the conversation to some stats that we're seeing right now and, and would love to hear your thoughts on it. This document opens saying, the United States fares worse in preventing pregnancy-related deaths than most other developed nations. Despite participation, participation in the Millennial Development Goals, or MDGs, and spending more than any other country on hospital-based maternity care. The maternal mortality ratio, or MMR, in the U.S. remains about 17 deaths per 100,000 live births. Between 2000 and 2017, the global MMR decreased by 38%. The U.S. has also failed to meet prior national goals for maternity mortality reduction and did not meet the Modest Healthy People, People 2020 goal of reducing maternal mortality by 10% between 2007-2020. That's heavy. We, we live in a country where we are spending so much on healthcare and so much more than other countries and our rates of maternal mortality are so high. What's mm -hmm. up with that? Um, can, can you all help me learn a little bit more about when we say mortality, maternal, maternal mortality, what do we mean by that? What do we look in that? And why is it so bad in this country? Well, I, hate, I don't wanna just, Carolyn and Roxana, please chime in. I, it's just, this is my area, so I'm a little bit more in depth with the, with the stats. Um, you quoted the US, but also add in Georgia's because Georgia, the last report I looked at, it's about 67 per 100,000. So whereas you're looking across, oh, wow. yeah, so if you're saying 17 per 100,000 for the U.S., when you look at our state in particular, we rank 49th out of 50 for maternal mortality. So it's even worse when you get into the state. Why is it that high? I think it's a lot of factors. We have a, um, a system where we do more, but doing more doesn't necessarily relate to better outcome. I think that, again, we talked about the workforce is not as diverse as it needs to be. Um, I think that people you know, are entering pregnancy with a lot of more um, chronic health conditions that makes their pregnancies a little bit more complicated. So they have an increased risk for some of the leading causes of, of uh, mortality, which are hypertension and hemorrhage and infection. Whenever you have those chronic health conditions, you're gonna increase your risk for that. Um, so it's like a perfect storm of things. Then you have your, um, you know, your discrimination and racism and, and things tied into these larger infrastructures that are not designed to care as well for certain groups. So it all comes together and results in those statistics, in my opinion. Wow, wow. Roxana, are we seeing similar statistics uh, amongst uh, our immigrant populations in the US? Um, are, we, are we worried about maternal mortality as well? Um, it's, it's high, but there is this uh, uh, something called the immigrant paradox or Hispanic paradox, where immigrants who come into the United States, their birth outcomes are, are good. Uh, they're much better, but within a generation, their birth outcomes become worse. Um, and so we think it also has to do with, uh, you know, living uh, in a society where there's a lot of um, structural racism in place that uh, can affect women who, who are pregnant. Um, and it, it's, um, and, and now with COVID-19, uh, um, I'm seeing that a lot of uh, immigrant women are, if they get sick, they get really sick from COVID-19. Um, so yeah. that, that's another layer that we have to think about right now. 
Wow. Yeah, the statistics with that uh, show that for it's, it's primarily Hispanic families that when you look at their severity of COVID, um, they are actually leading in the statistics, meaning they're more likely to be uh, hospitalized and ventilated when they're pregnant. Um, and I think some of that, go ahead. The, I was just going to say, and I think that part of that uh, has to do uh, with Hispanic women or, you know, Latinos or immigrants uh, are essential workers, right? So they have continued to work through this pandemic. They are, and oftentimes these jobs that they have uh, do not have uh, policies in place to protect them, you know, to have access to COVID-19 testing, to uh, masks. And so they're out there, you know, keeping the economy open and making sure that we, you know, we call it from, um, from picking all the way to, uh, for us to eat, like that whole food supply chain there is really vulnerable uh, to COVID-19 and, and other uh, hazards. Wow. Mm -hmm. it, it, you know, as I think about maternal mortality and, and, you know, people dying in hospital settings, but pregnancy, I mean, there's a whole level and, and, and tons of care that's needed, you know, as early as possible when a woman becomes pregnant. So, you know, I, I think Carolyn too, working in more of like a clinical setting, you see a lot of folks before they have to go to the hospital. Are we, are we doing what we need to do for prenatal care? Um, and is that one of the factors and why we're struggling with, with rates so bad in the state of Georgia? I was thinking about that as a factor as well. So in, in this state in particular, access to um, primary care and much less an obstetrical provider, whether that's a physician or a midwife or a, a nurse is really limited in, in significant parts of our states. Of course, we, I think many of us recognize scope of practice limitations and why it would be difficult for, for example, an advanced practice nurse to be practicing um, more than a certain number of miles away from their collaborating physician potentially. So not getting access to just that ongoing prenatal care. Because I think, um, Lexi, correct me if I'm wrong, but maternal mortality is counted when a woman dies while pregnant, regardless of whether the cause of death is specifically pregnancy related. Yes, up until the first year after. Okay. So the, all those stats go into it. Mm -hmm. So we have this lack of access for sort of ongoing prenatal care, things we could have captured um, in, in elevated blood pressure, for example, spilling glucose into the urine, some of the things that we know to look for, even those of us who are not obstetrical um, specialists, know to look for those kinds of things to get people to ongoing care that can be really helpful. Um, and then I think also in terms of access to healthcare and access to a strong social network is this notion of what's going on in that person's home overall. So I've, you know, even before COVID and when we were isolating at home with um, folks within the house with a lot more contact than we previously had, intimate partner violence has always been a concern for women who are pregnant. So a, a major cause of death while pregnant is homicide. That's not just, you know, something we think about as healthcare related. Clearly it has a health related outcome though. And I can only imagine that's being exacerbated this year. Wow. Yeah, yeah I, I imagine so. I was just going to say a story that uh, about intimate uh, partner violence. So, you know, you're, when you go into the hospital or, or when you start prenatal care, you're supposed to be screened for interpersonal violence, right? But it, when I was pregnant, that didn't, I never was screened uh, yeah. during my prenatal care. Really? And then, yeah. And then, and the only reason why I was paying attention uh, was because I was taking uh, forensic nursing with Dr. Angela Amar. And so she, you know, that's her specialty, intimate partner violence. And, 
And then when I went into the hospital during intake, uh, so my partner is in the room with me and the nurse, you know, starts uh, screening me, but she does it in a way that she says, so um, is anybody like beating you? Or are you beating anyone? You know, very like nonchalant about wow. it. And I said, no. And I thought, you know, what a tragedy, a lost opportunity that so many women uh, do not have the chance to really report something that's going on because we as healthcare providers, we make the assumption that perhaps it's not happening or don't take it serious enough to like ask women these questions in a setting where they can feel comfortable to reveal something that may be going on at home. Wow. So, wow. Yeah, but we, you know, we train our midwives. I mean, I, I can't speak for other places, but that is something that we heavily have in our curriculum. Um, and we teach them ways of getting that information because sometimes women don't want to say it because the person is right there in the room with them or their other family members. So we have, we teach them techniques on how to clear the room and how to get that information. So as far as midwives, that is something that we, um, I would say are on top of. And if there's anyone listening that's dealing with this, express it to your provider. It's dangerous. It's not worth staying in a situation like that where you or your baby can be harmed. So don't be afraid to speak up and make sure you, you tell someone. Yeah, thank you for saying that, Lexi. And, and something since we started the Nurses Station show, I've enjoyed following all of you all on social media. And, and Lexi, you especially when it comes to aspects around nurse midwifery, mom and baby care. Um, and you recently had a post, I guess a week or so ago on Facebook mm -hmm. talking about some of these aspects and sharing some stories. Could you share a little bit about that? Because I think like we live in a world of social media and how can we better connect to our communities that way? Because I think you're doing a really amazing job at that. Thanks, Tim. You know, I just like to, I have a lot of friends who are labor delivery nurses and nurse midwives, and I, I just see their posts, and a lot of them are dealing with the emotional heaviness of everything and feeling like they want to do more for their patients and they can't. And so I put up a post, um, and I asked them, what has been the most challenging aspect of providing care to families during the kind of simultaneous COVID-19 and racism pandemic? And I asked them to be very candid with me. Um, and I have a few things written here, so I'm going to kind of refer to it. Um, and some of the themes that came across and um, that a lot of people consistently shared was the loss of human touch. And it makes me think back to the core of nursing, how human touch and interaction is like at the meat of our profession. And a lot of them are like, you can't, I can't touch my patients. I have on all this PPE. And when someone's in labor or they're going through something, you really want to interact and show them with your face that I'm here for you. But midwives are having to do, and nurses are having to do that through their eyes it's really hard to do that in labor when you, the person really needs to feel connected to you. Um, it's so many stories that people share with me. I don't, I don't know how much time we have to talk about it, but I mean, I have a ton of information that the nurses and the midwives have shared, um, but they're really trying to do their best. Uh, and I remind our audience, if you've got specific questions about this, please send them in our chat. We do read our chat and we can try to address them in future episodes or respond in chat. Lexi, I know you also had a really cool interview um, with a nurse midwife and, and I'm hoping that maybe she's got some stories to share as well. So why don't we transition to that? You interviewed uh, Angelina Ruffin, right? She's a certified yes. nurse midwife um, and she's a DNP. Not DNP. She's not a DNP. Okay. FNP, family nurse practitioner. Oh, I gotcha. Ooh. You just did an acronym for no reason. <laughs> you just yeah, got I a like point acronyms. for. <laughs> <laughs> I got, I got two, two times points for stupidity. She's not a DMP. I mean, a doctor. 
doctor nurse in practice. She's a family nurse. I'm going to shut up right now and let's turn to the interview and hear some of her wisdom. <laughs> All right. Great. So good afternoon, everyone. Welcome back. I have a special guest. We have a very special guest with us today, Miss Angelina Ruffin, certified nurse midwife and family nurse practitioner. She's also an alumna of the Emory University School of Nursing Nurse Midwifery Program. And we are so, so excited to have her here with us today. Uh, she is the owner and director of Touch Up Oshun Midwifery um, Service. And she has been a nurse midwife for, I believe, a little bit over six years now. Cheers. Angelina? Yes. yes. Six years. And she's <laughs> out there she's in the community. She's on the front lines. And we thought it'd be very important today to share with you, you know, what our nurses are actually doing and kind of bring some of those stories to life. So, Angelina, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. <laughs> This is great. It's so nice to see you. It's yeah. so nice to see yeah. you. How you been? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> How you, you been doing okay? I've been okay. Busy. Very busy since COVID, Corona, all that good stuff. But we'll talk all about that loveliness, how, how all of that is going. Yeah, I can't wait to hear about it. So I guess before we jump in that, uh, let our, re our listeners and uh, we have, so when this show airs, it's both a podcast and a webcast. So some people will see you and some will hear you. So if you could just let our listeners know a little bit about your midwifery journey, how you became a midwife, what brought you into the profession and kind of just go from there. Perfect. Um, I always tell people that I, I didn't want to be a midwife. I thought this was actually pretty nasty. This was like the grossest what? thing I had ever seen. Oh yes. I had on a white mm -hmm. uniform. I did not want to get it dirty. I, I thought this was just gross. I wasn't trying to do that. Um, but I did enjoy working with women. I knew that. So after working in the ICU in Detroit, I came to Atlanta and I said, I'm going to do women's health nurse practitioner at Emory. Great. But I guess in order for women to come and see me at my office, I should be able to at least understand the labor process. Um, right. So I actually did an interview at Grady. That's where I kind of started my, my journey in labor and delivery. And it just turned into a, oh, wow, people are actually happy here. I might be able to do this, maybe. So I just kind of switched my degree over because in my head I was gonna work in public health anyway. Um, and I switched my degree over to midwifery and nurse practitioner. Really kind of looking at nurse practitioner being the standing front for my career, but I ended up catching a baby and that was it. I was like, okay. That was it. You fell in love. It was yeah. love at first birth. <laughs> it was scary, but what? yes. <laughs> I never, I never knew that you weren't just like for me. I was one of those ones. I was born. I knew from the time I took my first breath, I was gonna deliver babies. I never yeah. knew no. on how you know you're, what you do. I always thought that you just knew from the start. I never knew that you. I, kinda, I was going to be a um, in living color dancer. I should have been J-Lo. That's, that's what I believe. <laughs> oh my, how the tables have turned. You know, you could always dance. Didn't you have one of your patients dancing on one of your uh, Instagrams? Um, when I started working in the field, uh, my first job was at the, uh, as a hospital midwife um, before I came out into home birthing. But I worked with another midwife named Marsha Ford. She was awesome. She um, showed me the ropes. And our thing was get the baby out. Hey, that's how you're gonna get paid. Vaginal, vaginal birth. Everything, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I said, you do what you gotta do. I don't care if you dance, walk, skip, something, you need to move and get this baby out. When I came around the corner, yeah. she was 
dancing in the hallway doing the nene. So we just filmed it and it went crazy. I love it. It went viral, right? It did. It did. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to share that link with on our page so people can see that because I thought it was really, really fun. Yes, first time mama nine pound baby. So we wow. were happy about it. Got him, got him out, right? <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's what it's all about. But look, since we're talking about patience and, you know, I think some of the greatest parts about being a midwife and providing a service is the bond and the, the connection we have with our patients. Do you have any birth stories or, you know, interesting things you would like to share or talk about? Um, all of you have some. <laughs> all of the bonds with my moms are special because um, I don't just say, hey, you had a baby goodbye. So a lot of times they're sharing their babies with me when they come back or there's a reason why they got to the home birth scene in the first place. And we're going through a journey trying to get through this birth. But one that sticks out in particular, mom was, um, and I do water births. So mom was in the pool. Um, we're at her home. And I told dad, I said, you know, whenever you're ready, you get in so you can support her, all that great stuff. And I'm just staring at mom. I'm intense. I'm like, okay, you got this. You can do this. And before I know it, there's this hairy butt cheek coming across my eyes. And all, <laughs> and all I could think was, oh my God. <laughs> Who's hairy butt cheeks? It was dad's hairy butt cheeks. He just oh. got into the pool butt naked. Ah. So in my head, of course, all I can think is, please look at his eyes only. His eyes only. Do not reach in the pool and grab the baby and accidentally grab him. So dads can be pretty interesting in birth, is what you're saying. Absolutely. Absolutely. They had a beautiful birth. You know, everybody was naked. He was naked. She was naked. Their toddler was Maybe naked. Was <laughs> I mean, it was just one a free birth. Uh. <laughs> right. A free-spirited birth. Hey, you know That's what? Whatever it family needs, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, that one, you, I always tell families now, I need you to give me a heads up so I'm not in shock. But otherwise, if yeah. that's what you need, you do what you got to do. Whatever gets your yeah, baby. Yeah, that's beautiful. So to all our dads out there listening, talk with your midwife or provider about your options and, you know, and yes. how you can show up in your birth. Uh, or if Angela, if you have any more tips for dads. I know we were joking about the, 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 the hairy cheeks, but I mean, do you have any uh, tips you have for dads? I, I know it can be, sometimes we don't bring them up a lot in conversation, but. Right. So the one thing I do talk about with dads is that um, support is important important. Um, and what does support look like? So I have to get mom and dad together. And I have to talk about what her expectation of support is versus what dad's expectation of support is. Now I have many dads that say, I am not catching a baby. I am not doing none of that. I'll go get you some towels if you want, but that's it. Where mom is thinking, well, I just want you in the pool with me and all this beautiful, lovely stuff. And he's like, nah, you know, so we have to kind of talk about expectations and what support means and how best to really jump in there and give her what she needs and still understand our limitations. And all, all right. of those with parenting, you know, some of these are first time parents and I say co-parenting starts from the day you got pregnant, not yeah. from the day the baby is out and we're trying to figure out what school they go to from the day you got pregnant. What pediatrician are we going to? How are we raising this child? What diapers are we going to use? All, everything that's in that. So now this becomes a family 
conversation as opposed to whatever she wants. Gotcha. Yeah, so that, that sounds really important. I'm curious to know, um, I'm trying to think about how midwifery care has changed. I mean, I know that's, I know you've always practiced that way. I know a lot of midwives have a family-centered um, approach, mm -hmm. but in your experience, I, I want to kind of shift gears a little bit and talk about how your care and that you provided has changed since COVID. You know, we have a bunch of pandemics going at the same time. We have COVID-19, we have a racism pandemic, Absolutely. we have maternal mortality thrown around in the mix. So what's been your, what's been most challenging? You know, what's been the hardest part about providing care for families at this time? And how has your care changed? Or what, what looks different? Mm -hmm. I'm not, you know, as active as I was, you know, clinically. Absolutely. So I don't have as much of an insight on that. So I'm curious to know what your experience has been. Um, understanding the, the disease process, especially in the pregnant women and it, trying to explain to them who can and cannot come to their birth, um, wearing this, this, uh, mask and all this extra stuff at a birth or during their care altogether. Um, I've done, I'm doing more telecommunication as opposed to I just show up to, at your house for every visit or whatever the case is. Um, and I think uh, a lot of coping for families. So uh, in a, for an example, I had a mom, um, a, a mom who is a Caucasian family, and she decided she didn't want to bother me because the riots had just started. And she didn't want me to be out at night because she was scared that I would get pulled over by the police. Well, she called me at the very last minute and ended up catching her own baby on our living room floor. And of course her and the baby were fine, her husband were fine, but just that thought process of she was thinking about me and my well-being, you know? So it, it has changed for a lot of the families, you know, just wondering um, what does this mean for us? And if we have to go to the hospital, what does that mean? And are they going to take care of us the same way? And can I see my family after I actually go into the hospital? It's, it's just a lot of mental health and emotional strain that's been going on. Not to mention home birth business has increased tremendously. Um, yeah, I was wondering how the COVID, since now everybody's afraid to be in the hospital, um, how that has impacted, you know, your, your business and the care you provide. So you feel like more families are seeking that out? Absolutely. Absolutely. I used to get um, probably about three or four calls a month for a home birth. Um, sometimes I get more than that, but I usually book about three or four uh, people in a month. Uh, and then during my January through April season, I couldn't, I knew for sure it would be a slow season for me. So that's when I would do like vacation time things. There's no vacation now at all. Like people are booking me <laughs> And, and this sounds crazy, but I had a woman book me when she was two weeks. Now, two weeks pregnant means this is when you're ovulating. We and even, she was already trying to. Right, yeah. right. She probably had yeah, sex yeah. the night before. I, I don't know what's going on, but you know. <laughs> right. But it's just yeah. the fear. There's a lot of fear of going into the hospital right now and being alone and not being able to actually have a conversation with the provider or looking at a lot of medical providers with a lot of this gear on or wondering if their baby's going to be taken away or whatever the case is. There's a lot of fear. Yeah. Well, what about you? Well, how, how do you think the pandemic um, has affected you or nurse midwifery, our profession in general? I mean, I've been talking to a few nurse midwives and other colleagues, but I'm curious to know what you've been hearing or how you personally have felt in the midst of all this. How, how are you holding up? Oh, there's an increased stress because you want to maintain the, the same quality of care 
but the load has increased um, for many of the home birth midwives that I've been working with or been around in the community. Um, the load is so high and you have to turn so many people away and you feel so bad. Um, and then you're hearing about unassisted births because they can't find anyone, not just because that's what they choose to do. So um, it's, it's an increased stress, you know, um, just trying to find some time to separate work and family life and some self-care. It, it gets to be a bit much. Yeah. What advice do you have, um, you know, for nurse midwives, labor and delivery nurses, other health professionals that are working in this area as far as how to better take care of themselves? I know um, I've been talking to some people. They're having a lot of anxiety. Um, they're feeling less intimacy in the birth uh, settings just because, you know, like you, you talked about having on all the gear, you know, just not being able to be as close with your patients. Um, and over time, I think that emotional heaviness can weigh on you. So do you have any tips on how, how you actually are trying to do self-care or balance? Um, schedule me time. And, and it has to be scheduled, unfortunately. You know, before you can say, I just feel like going to the store. Ah, we can't feel like doing anything. We have to actually fit it in. And that may mean that during this particular time, nobody can have it. Um, and, uh, I know I got home from a birth one time and I just went out in the yard and started picking herbs, you know, just <laughs> a moment where we kind of check out to, and yeah. just be one with ourselves. And that's really what it's about. I don't care if it's a bath, a massage or whatever, but we just need a moment to check out. Yeah, I agree. I agree. You know, I'm, I'm just working on a PRN basis, so I'm doing it just enough to where it's still, I want to say not, it's enjoyable. It's always enjoyable as a midwife, but you know, there's a line where if you're working a lot, it can become very stressful. So I haven't quite had to pinch like a lot of my colleagues have. Uh, I want to shift gears a little bit, um, Angelina. I know we're talking about COVID and, and the, the racism thing, but I kind of want to shift gears a little bit and um, talk to you about maternal mortality. I know it's, it's a, a buzzword that we've heard, you know, going around, but it's been something that's been happening for a very long time. Right. Um, I think that we have a long way to go with it. And I think that nurses and nurse midwives and midwives have not been discussed as one of those solutions. I mean, I know people know we exist, um, but I feel that we should be a solution. So how do you think we can solve the crisis? Um, what do you think are ways that we can address this? Um, and how have you been doing that with your patients? Um, something that, this is actually something I actually started back with uh, Marsha Ford's practice. Um, we were doing this at her practice and it was more of a well-rounded care. So it's not just you come and have your visit and you go home. Like we wanted to know what all the aspects were that were going on with you. How was your living situation? How are your financial situation? Um, what are your plans for postpartum? Um, there, it was a more, instead of me just checking your baby, I needed to check on you and see what's going on. And this needed to be a, a family a family unit that was actually learning and uh, helping each other. So whenever it was like, okay, it's time to give birth, who's gonna be helping you when you get home? Is your mom here? Is your, who, your child, you know, child's father gonna be there? Really having communities take hold of their own health and understand their health and a lot of educating about the reason you have this recurring UTI is because da 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 da, da you know. Um, so I do that now. Um, people have to come to me, they have to exercise, you know, and I tell them right off the bat, 
there is no way that you are going to sit on your behind and have this home birth. So you're going to exercise. You're going to take these educational classes. You might have a doula. Um, we're talking about your nutrition. I need to know what you're eating. You know, that's a big thing for me. And then we're going to prepare for postpartum, not just let it happen, but we're actually going to prepare for the breastfeeding, prepare for the returning to work, you know, prepare for the postpartum depression. For me, most of the time, my mamas who have had postpartum depression, it has been because it was situational. Not necessarily the hormones. I'm not saying that postpartum depression is not a hormone-based thing, but most of them have been a situational type of you know, thing going on. So once I correct the situation, we were good. So, you know, it's just trying to kind of get into it. Let, what are we gonna do? What are we gonna do to yeah. help the family in totality together? Gotcha. And um, so even with that, so you feel that your patients and families feel, cause I mean, it's a lot in the media and the press about women are dying, black women are dying in childbirth. Yeah. Are, are the patients expressing fear to you about that? I, mean, I know you're doing your education and you're trying to help put off the, the, the things we know that increase the risk for mortality. But I'm just curious as to how black women and uh, you know black and indigenous people of color are feeling when they come into you and they're pregnant and they hear about the this maternal mortality risk. Do you feel like- Absolutely, they, they fear uh, mortality and they feel like seeing a face that looks like them will help. Um, for some reason, it's it's like if I go to someone else, then they don't understand me. They don't know what I'm saying. They can't. And I honestly, even when I was pregnant with my daughter, I feared mortality. I just wasn't sure that I was going to make it through a birth, you know, and that is crazy to be a labor and delivery nurse at that time, fearing mortality in your birth. But I did. It was something that was there because it was happening. So just understanding what is going on, what are we doing? Do we need an intervention? And if we are having this intervention, how are we, you know, dealing with it in a timely manner or not in a timely that type of thing? We have to be very educated about our care and the care provider that we have. Yeah, yeah. We we I agree with you. And I think that as a nursing profession, this is something that I know we're talking about at the Emory School of Nursing and many nursing schools are talking about how we can diversify our workforce, how we can get more uh, nurses and nurse midwives of color and representative of the, the populations we take care of. Absolutely. So Angelina, I just want to thank you. I wish we had more time to talk with you today, but um, we can always follow up with more questions. Thank you for your service to the community. Thank you for being out there on the front lines and providing care for women. Um, and I know we didn't talk about this at the beginning, but I had the privilege of when Angelina was a student, we worked together and I always tell her that we're bonded um, because we, at, in our program at Emory, we have a special thing called a blessing of the hands uh, ceremony. So at the end of our program, uh, students select the faculty and their preceptor who have, you know, essentially birthed them into the profession. And so I'm Angelina's mom. I know you can see the family. <laughs> These are an extension so, of your hands. <laughs> yes, extension of hands. Our hands are our blessing. And I'm, I'm so grateful that you're out there right here in Atlanta in a hot spot in the state with one yeah. of the highest maternal mortality rates, but you haven't lost a mom. You've had all healthy births. That's and I'm really grateful for the service that you're providing. Thank you. Thank and you. So thank you for being here today to share with everyone about nursing. We're free. Um, and if anyone has any questions, we'll, we'll have Angelina's information to her Instagram and ways you can reach out to her to, to talk more. So uh, thanks, Angelina. All right. Thank you. Wow. Angelina. Welcome. That was awesome. Alexis, thanks so much for that interview. What a, what a beautiful. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> I had a question. I don't know if 
much about water births or anything, but does she get into the pool with them? No, she doesn't get in, but um, <laughs> she's over like the edge. If you're, if you're birthing the baby, you know, they have where if you want gloves to kind of come up to your shoulders there. But no, the midwife doesn't get in, but typically it's the mom and her partner in there, in the, in the actual water. And is it safe to say if, if the partner has a hairy butt and wants to get in, the partner should, <laughs> is, part of the birthing plan, wax before the birth? Is that? <laughs> right, right. How'd you feel about that? I was just waiting for you to. <laughs> Did you know I have a hairy butt? Because like, I really took it personally. I'm like. Oh hairy. my goodness. It's okay. No problem. I mean, everybody's different and unique, you know. Right. Yeah. And now I know I'm going to wax if I'm ever in that situation. Wax yeah. Before. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously. It's hilarious. funny how, you know, I think we um, maybe consider just a little bit, it's hard to think about it because we're still in the pandemic, but thinking about the ways the pandemic will change us and the way we think about things forever. And, you know, I think in the case of um, having babies, there was this transition to like only the hospital, the hospital-based birth is the thing and it's the gold standard. And I'm not a midwife, obviously, but I do have lots of midwife coworkers who have educated me over the years that, you know, that has not necessarily um, been borne out in terms of our birth outcomes. And mm -hmm. so to hear kind of this transition and this demand for her services uh, for a variety of reasons, including to avoid the hospital. I mean, look, my whole goal in practice is to keep my patients out of the hospital because it's not set up for their success either. So I get it, yeah. but I kind of wonder how long that will last. That's really been interesting. Yeah, it has been interesting um, because I think that there's a, I mean, there are definitely patients that need to be in a hospital setting. Um, I, I think that's kind of our traditional standard in the U.S., but I think it's time for us to kind of step back and take a look at kind of what's best. Like, there are some people, it might be perfectly safe for them to be with uh, a licensed provider at home um, or in a birth center. Um, and so, yeah, I think it has been interesting this, how, the, how COVID has shifted that, that paradigm a little bit. Yeah. Lexi, has, has COVID shifted uh the way that we are naming babies? Because I know there's going to be a baby boom because you've talked about this before. <laughs> but babies are already being born. Yeah. Any yeah. interesting they're, names? Uh, I heard them called the, the coronials, and they said in about 2033, 30, 34, there'll be the quarantines. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I saw. Go ahead. Go ahead, Tim. So what you're saying is like because so many people are locked in, they're just doing it a whole lot more. So we're going to see a ton of babies. Probably. Oh my you know, gosh. I, I, I advocate for that. This is, this is why I'm able to eat. The more people have sex and enjoy themselves, the better I am. So I say go for it. Yeah, I think they've been going for it. We'll see. I mean, we're coming into that. We should start having births. Uh, this co coronavirus started with March, February, March. March. Yeah, we're going to see here in the next few months just how busy people have been. All right, get ready, get ready, nursing students. Get ready. Nurse midwives, L&D. Yeah. Bring it on. <laughs> <laughs> So what are we going to call these babies? Roxanne, I think you had mentioned a website or something you found. Oh, yeah. So there's babies who have already been named, um, like um, twins, one boy and a girl. So the boy is COVID and the girl is Corona. And uh, another one who's named Corona with a K-O apostrophe R-O-R-O-N-A virus V-Y-R-S-S. Oh, my goodness. Nice. Wow. Yeah. Brilliant. That's a big much, but you know, I'm not going to judge, you know, that's your baby. You do what you do. I mean, I hear on the nurses station, we are name positive. We <laughs> yeah. are, we are sex positive. We are 
be informed positive about if you want to have your baby at home or in a hospital. We are positive about supporting our nurse midwives um, and, and absolutely positive that, uh, wow, it's hard to imagine so many more babies are going to be coming along. That's exciting. Yeah, I know. I'm, ex- I'm so excited. I'm so yeah. this I'm so excited. I'm so happy. Wow. Well, Angelina I love was- being a midwife. I mean, I- can you tell how much we love yeah. being midwives from the interview? How many folks listening right now want to be a midwife? Like, chime in, send it in the comments, and then, and like, we'll, we'll connect you. You might want to come to Emory School of Nursing. Just... Yeah. Best nurse midwife program in the country, I'm telling you. Yeah, come Best on. Best one. <laughs> Angelina <laughs> talks so much about, um, and I'm looking at her website right now. Um, it's an amazing website. It's touchofsun.com. And I feel like what one thing that Angelina was mentioning was just, like, the stories that come with these birthing stories that, like, I was laughing. I was weeping in some of them. I was... I was anxious about my hairy butt in one of them. But like, <laughs> Lexi, I think you've got another story from a nurse that, that chimed in. Um, would you be yeah. willing to share that? Because I think stories are so powerful, especially in this context. Yeah, for sure. I actually want to read this one verbatim because I just feel like it's powerful, the words that she said. And I think it's important to amplify our nurses and their voices. Um, so this is what she wrote. She said, I was finishing charting, had already given report and everything. Then a nurse called out for help with finding heart tones on her bleeding patient. I ran in and after two seconds, I just knew we would never find the heartbeat. For anyone who has had this happen before, you know what I mean when I say, quote, I just knew after a few seconds. We rushed her to a private room because our triage area had a deliberate mom and baby at the moment. We had the MD come in to confirm what we already knew. That's when it hit me. This woman has no one to hold her. Her fiance hadn't arrived yet and I couldn't hug her. I couldn't gather up in my arms and cry with her the very thing we both needed at that moment. Of course, I held her hand for as long as I could, but when your world comes crashing down around you like that, a hand simply isn't enough. And, you know, I feel like I want to tear up because, you know, I've helped um, families going through loss and I just can't imagine um, how it would be to not be able to hold your patient. A hand is not enough. Loss in in pregnancy and birth is a very hard thing. Um, I know some people may have saw um, Chrissy Teigen and John Legend uh, were very open and transparent about losing their um, son. Uh, She was about halfway through her pregnancy, so I'm estimating around 24 weeks. Um, And she posted a lot of pictures showing um, going through that process. It is a hard thing. And you can't hold your patient. You you can't, a hand is not enough. Um, And this is what our nurses and our nurse midwives are dealing with. We deal with this anyway, but imagine you have a pandemic where there's no one to come in and be with you at that time. Let's say when you first get pregnant, you come in, you're all excited, and then they tell you, you know, ma'am, unfortunately, we don't see the baby's heart beating. And you're, you don't have anyone around you. It's awful. I hate to, like, get it somber, but, I mean, it, it, it's a hard time. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and, and mad props to Chrissy Teigen and John Legend and all the other moms out there who have, have shared their stories online. I saw your post on Instagram, um, Lexi, uh, about their picture, because I think stigma also makes it so challenging to talk to. And, and we, we're, we've been talking a lot about healthcare heroes since COVID started, but I think the reality is nurses have been heroes since day one yeah. because we face what is in front of us. We hold the hands and when we can't hold the hands, we're holding up the iPads. When we can't do it one way, we think of an innovation to do it in a different way so we can still keep trying to provide compassionate care, no matter what. Um, mm-hmm. But it's tough and it's, it's real. 
Yeah, and as you heard Angelina and I talking about our hands, our hands are our tools, right? And our arms, you know, and so we don't have that as a midwife, you know, as, as some of the other midwives mentioned, we have to use our eyes. We try to convey care as much as we can through our eyes, you know, even. Um, so it's, it's an interesting time, but I think all of us are still honored to be able to be a nurse, to be there at the transition, whether it's the transition to life or whether you're bearing life and death into your hands. It's still a blessing and we are, um, as nurse midwives, I do think it's a very special profession and I'm so glad that I get to, to share in that. Yeah, thank you so much. Roxanne or Carolyn, any, any closing thoughts as, as we wrap this powerful episode? So I'm, uh, yeah, I'm curious and thinking about the uh, historical geriatric specialists in um, 80 years, uh, seeing these patients named Corona and uh, say going back, good for us. And, uh, and it's such an honor, like I said, uh, never necessarily been interested in moms and babies, but so glad that I have colleagues who are, who are supporting women and their whole families as they're going through this process. And it's been really a pleasure highlighting that today. Yeah, I would just say for all the nurses and nursing students that um, take serious screening patients for interpersonal violence, it's, uh, don't let that opportunity miss where you could save a woman and their uh, child. That's great. Thank you so much. I think like so many of our episodes, we are just at the tip of the iceberg on, on, on details around issues, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So we welcome your feedback and questions. If there's something that you didn't hear that you want to hear on a future episode, write to us. If there's something that we touched on that doesn't sit well with you or sits really well with you, let us know. We, we love that feedback. You can contact us on social media, LinkedIn, Instagram, we're tweeting. Um, you can also find us if you go on to nursing.emory.edu forward slash the nurses station. Thanks you all for listening today. Thank you all so much, Lexi. Thank you and all the nurse midwives out there that are making this world a better place. Yes, thanks. Well, thanks for everyone for listening. We'll see y'all next Bye. time.